Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Glad to be your host on the podcast. And uh, as you may or may not be able to tell, uh, I have a cold. Naturally, this happens uh, as the weather turns warm. We've had a series of beautiful sunny days here in Grand Rapids, the home of the Acton Institute. And uh, this is about the time that uh, my sinuses decide, let's have a party. And so uh, in the interest of getting off the mic as quickly as possible, I'm going to very quickly remind you that uh, we have Acton University coming up here in Grand Rapids. Uh, As we record this, it is next week. So starting on June 16th, 2015, Acton University 2015 opens up with a lecture by Dr. Samuel Gregg. He will be our evening plenary speaker to open the conference. And uh, you can join us. If you're not able to join us as a full participant, we're actually opening up our evening plenary lectures to the public. Uh, You can have a great dinner, uh, meet some really interesting people, and uh, take in a great, stimulating lecture. We've got four evening plenary sessions. As I said, Dr. Sam Gregg opens up the conference with uh, night one. Uh, On night two, Dr. Greg Thornberry of the King's College in New York is our plenary speaker. Night three, Joel Salatin. Uh, organic farmer and uh, a well-known commentator on issues of food and agriculture. And we'll be closing out the conference on Friday night, June 19th, with our co-founder and president, Reverend Robert A. Sirico. Check out actin.org slash events for more information and uh, registration info on uh, our dinner and a lecture deal at Acton University. Without further ado, let me pass the mic over to my healthy self. Uh, I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with a former colleague here at the Acton Institute, Jonathan Witt. Uh, he is a still a uh, research and media fellow here at Acton, and he has just released a new book with his friend and former colleague here at Acton, Jay Richards, called The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and the West Forgot. Uh, take it away, healthy Mark. Well, I'm pleased to welcome today to the Acton Studios a man who is no stranger around here, a person that we, we miss seeing on a daily basis, but uh, has moved on to bigger and better things. Jonathan uh, Jonathan Witt is here. And Jonathan, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you back. Glad to be back. We now, Jonathan, yeah, you used to be uh, full-time with us right here in the Acton building, but then you moved on. Uh, to uh, you know, apparently greener pastures. Well, well I, I, not are greener. they green? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say greener. Texas, so uh, metaphorically, metaphorically greener. Greener right? past, past, pastures. Lower in tax. Texas. Lower tax. Fields, True, shall we say? And you are now managing fellow of a, a fine new news website, news and commentary called thestream.org. Yeah, ma- managing editor of the stream, stream.org. Go and check it out. Yes, it's a, it's a good site, and of course, you remain a uh, media fellow. Uh, and uh, a research fellow here at the Acton mm-hmm. Institute. That's right. Yep. And you're in town today to uh, participate in our Acton Lecture Series, actually wrapping up the marathon spring portion of the Acton Lecture Series, where we've just had great lecture upon great lecture upon great lecture. So there's high standards for you to hold yeah, up today. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping I'm the, I'm the climactic finale. I may be the dregs, you know, the cl- kind of cleaning <laughs> out the back, you know, closet Flush, flushing out summer. the Flushing out the act and lecture system, right? We'll with ha- Jonathan we'll have to Witt. See. We'll have to, we'll okay, it's it's going to be great. But you're here to talk about a uh, book that you have just written uh, with uh, your friend and our former colleague here at Acton, Jay Richards, who is also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, working at the Stream now. Yes, we're yeah, we're partnering up for the Stream, and you partnered up for your book called The Hobbit Party. The vision of freedom that Tolkien got and the West forgot. So, uh, first question, I guess, quickly: Why do we need to write a book about 
uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and his vision of freedom? Well, Tolkien was uh, he's one of the most popular novelists in the English language. His Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are, are the number three and number two best-selling novels in any language of all time. Uh, so he's penetrated uh, Western culture, uh, both popular culture, and now his literary star has been rising in recent decades. He was uh, from early on supported by C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, so he had some literary cachet from the beginning. He was an Oxford uh, professor yes. and, and scholar. But what happened is the left, sensing that they had, they had a problem on their hands because there are some very clearly conservative themes running through The Hobbit and then especially The Lord of the Rings, um, concerns with concentrated political power. Uh, there's a high view of tradition, uh, an idea that there's a higher morality, that we can't just kind of make up our morality as we go. On and on we could go with the conservative themes in Tolkien. So what the left did, some of them tried to trash Tolkien. Others tried to appropriate him when they realized, okay, he's not going away. So sure. they tried to appropriate him. Oh, he's kind of a hippie. You know, you have the hobbits. They love mushrooms and, and pipeweed, pipe and they weed, live out in nature. So they're kind of like, you know, hippies. And so they, uh, some of them tried to do that. Others tried to uh, uh, take him and, and warp uh, what he was about. And so we have, there's an essay here, an article there, a podcast there about Tolkien's political view and from a conservative point of view, but there wasn't a single sustained study of the topic. And so that's what Jay and I did in The Hobbit Party. We teased out, both from looking at his letters, from looking at his, his novels, that rich political vision uh, in his commitment to limited government that comes through in those novels. It's interesting. There's a lot of uh, a lot of that that goes on the sort of cultural appropriation, and you have sometimes it's both sides of the political argument will try to claim a person or an author or a historical figure as their own. And so with Tolkien, really, what you've done is you've gone back to a lot of the sources. And there's an interesting quote that you have uh, you, you've dug up here from J.R.R. Tolkien, where he says that my political opinions lead or lean more and more towards anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs. And I could ask, why, why does he trust non-whiskered men with bombs? But I think we'll leave that to, the, to part two of the podcast. Um, but he, he goes on to say, the most important job of any man, even saints, or I'm sorry, the most improper job of any man, even saints, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. Yeah, he was, and that was one reason he was a little bit, uh, more than a little bit suspicious of democracy, at least the democracy as it had manifested itself in, in the West, because he, he said, you know, what you always get are political leaders who very desperately wanted to be the heads of state. And he mm -hmm. said, at least with monarchy, you often have somebody that's you know kind of accidentally a monarch. <laughs> um, now, if you look, read carefully, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you see positive instances of representative government. So sure. I think his his views were actually more complex than if you just take one or two quotes. But he he keeps coming back to this this idea that political power and putting too much power in the hands of fallen human beings is a problem. And he, you know, the, the most famous way that he conveys that is through the ring of power in The Lord of the Rings. It's this invisibility ring in The Hobbit. But then we later learn that it, it grants enormous power to, to uh, evil wizards that know how to use it. And sure. so it's, it's in some ways a manifestation of Lord Acton's uh, dictum that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anybody that tries to use the ring for good or evil, they're, they're gradually corrupted by it. 
And so we have this anti-quest in Lord of the Rings. Instead of trying to get the ring and use it to gain more power, instead, the wise members say, you know what, we've got to take the ring to the one place where we can destroy it and get rid of it. So it's this, this willingness, this desire to push back and, and avoid concentrations of political power that drives the whole plot of that novel. In a sense, Tolkien shared the view of, in, in the way that you just described it, shared a, a lot of the view of government that the American founders had when they were writing our founding documents here in the United States. Yeah, that's right. They went to great lengths, our founders, to have separation of powers. Uh, they talked about how, you know, if you were a government of, of uh, people of angels, then you might be able to get away with concentrating power. But since we're not, uh, we need to come up with a system of checks and balances. Another interesting quote that you, you found from Tolkien, he says, if we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing. And it should be an offense to write it with a capital G or so as to refer to people. If people were in the habit of referring to King George's council, Winston and his gang... Uh, it would go a long way towards clearing thought and reducing the frightful landslide into theocracy. Can you talk a little bit about what he's what he's referring to there with the word the term theocracy? Yeah, he d he does not want a people getting in the habit of of thinking of the government as this abstract source of wisdom and power. Uh, we see in the Lord of the Rings you have the Eye of Sauron. Sauron is this very faceless power. Uh, and he's you know watching everything with the eye of Sauron and all his birds and his uh, Nazgul. Sure, the disembodied power. Yeah, of Sauron. This, yeah, it's like it's like the eye. That, it's like the Panopticon that Jerry Bentham talked about in the 19th century. This this watchtower that can see you, see all the the prisoners, but you can't tell when the watcher is in the watchtower. And he didn't want government to be. He wanted us to to know. Okay, it's these particular people. You know, you know, like for instance, when we talk about the Nobel Prize, the no, you know, oh my, this, this, you know, disembodied spirit of wisdom has descended and told us who is the Nobel laureate for peace. Well, if we start thinking, okay, these are uh, a handful of Swedish aristocrats, <laughs> left-wing Swedish aristocrats, you know. Spoiled. Are you saying you don't want to be governed by left-wing Swedish aristocrats? No, I don't. Uh, but if I am going to be, I want to, I want to have their names up on a, a bulletin board <laughs> with little bios about you know, all, I can't all their foibles. I can't think of any reasonable person who wouldn't want to be governed by right. a, a cabal of left-wing Swedish aristocrats. I, yeah. I, I just don't understand I'm, I guess you. I'm off the reservation on that one. But, but Tolkien, he, was, he, he wanted us to remember that governments are run by fallible human beings. And so that's what he's getting at with this. Let's, let's not use the term government. Uh, let, let's talk about particular people running our government. So I was struck while, while you were saying that with the, the, the concept of the disembodied eye of Sauron or the panopticon. That's kind of how I want my children to think of me. I want my children to always understand that dad is watching. Yeah, dad is yeah everything we've said, but, bracket that off when it comes to dad. But they're know, dad children. Methods. They're not uh, citizens, you know. And so if, you're, if, if, if the state starts becoming that sort of all-seeing paternalistic – uh, yeah, nice. Point, it, that, that's a that's a dangerous thing because yeah, you, you don't treat moms, people like adults. Yeah, moms have eyes in the back of their head. You know that's probably good for kids to imagine that. But it's very. I would prefer. And, you know, I would prefer not to think of Barack Obama as with, having eyes uh, in the back yeah, of his head yeah. for me. Yeah, or or Michelle Obama. Either any Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe Biden. Yes. Enough said. Yeah, let me eat the food I want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the I think there are a lot of school children who would probably agree with you there. Um, 
Tolkien was active as a writer in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, which, of course, is the right in the smack dab in the middle of the sort of Stalinist era, the heart of darkness of the Soviet Union there. And um, so presumably he had opinions on socialism, on, on the hardcore socialism that we saw in the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, he emphasized that he didn't want his novel seen as allegories, you know, like, you know, say, oh, Sauron is, is Stalin. That kind of thing. He wanted it to be more universal, to have, have applicability throughout history. But the applications, the lessons are, are clear. And, he, and even some of his letters, when and maybe he didn't think anybody was, was watching, at least the public was watching, he did occasionally draw a parallel between Sauron and Stalin. Uh, and, and it was this, uh, this, this notion of, of an evil political power trying to get, draw more and more power uh, to himself. And he, in, by various means, showed how that, that's corrupting both for uh, the one governing and also the people under uh, the one governed. Um, he uh, talked about uh, not just the militant, hard socialism of the Soviet Union, uh, but he was suspicious of the softer Western socialism. I mean, he has a he talks about in, in, a, in a letter to his son Christopher. Christopher mm-hmm. went on uh, and did a lot of the work on his posthumous. Uh, material, sure. uh, but he says in one letter to his son, I think this was during World War II when his son was fighting in World War II, they would have been fighting alongside the Soviet communists uh, mm-hmm. against Nazi Germany. So if there was ever a time when you might feel a little bit warmer and fuzzier toward the communists, it would have been then. But but Tolkien not only has no warm fuzzies for Stalin and the Soviets, he's also remains skeptical of European socialism. And so, and so he says, the saints are those who have for all their imperfections never finally bowed heart and will to the world of the evil spirit in modern but not universal terms mechanism scientific materialism socialism in either of its actions now at war and so he's saying either side of this war there's a, there's socialism at work and i want no no part of it i think it's it's guided by something evil so that's that's pretty strong language and if you, if you want to try to co-op tolkien for the left you've got some serious hurdles uh, once you actually move into his letters and see what he actually thought. Well, all that being said, having sort of established uh, the the general boundaries of, of of Tolkien's thought about politics, there are going to be some who are going to be, uh, and I, I've I've I know I've seen some pushback uh, in in certain reviews of your book. You know, they're skeptical that you're trying to draft uh, Frodo into the Republican Party or something, or or the the, the Fellowship of the Ring was the original Tea Party or something like that, protesting universal health care in the Shire or something like that. Let's let's actually have you look into uh, where do you see these these themes of liberty of perhaps small government uh, in the Lord of the Rings in the Shire, for instance. Yeah, the Shire's a great example, and, and that's we make the point that Tolkien would not have been a unambiguously enthusiastic member of, say, the Republican Party. Sure. Uh, but as you, as you go into the details, you see the reason is, is because, primarily because the Republican Party, all too often, is uh, aiding and abetting big government. I just point out, I don't know that there are all that many enthusiastic members of the Republican Party Period. in general at this point. But, right, yeah. With but a, go all, on, With please. all the compromise. <laughs> so, so at one level, you want to say, okay, true, he would not have been a you know, card-carrying member of the Republican Party. First of all, he was English, so he was, he was actually a member of the Conservative Party in sure. England. And he had problems with the Conservative Party in England, Winston and his gang. But it was always because they were 
to big government. It wasn't because he was a gentle Oxford moderate who wanted some <laughs> big government, some small government. It's because both parties, even the conservative uh, smaller government, quote-unquote, party uh, in both the United States and England weren't, weren't – committed enough to limited government. So it, it goes back to his distrust of the concentration yeah, of power. concentration of power and also the dignity of the human person or in the Shire, the hobbit person, uh, to direct his own uh, life to the degree that he can do that without you know, trampling the common good. And when we go to the Shire, which is one of the most beloved places for readers of Middle Earth, it's where, the, where most of the hobbits live. They have the round doors. It's very pastoral. They have villages and, and, and farms kind of running up against each other gently and, and in a very aesthetically compelling way. But as you dig into the details of the Shire, and it was one of Tolkien's favorite places in Middle Earth, they, it, in, at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings and, and the preface, it's described as a place that has hardly any government. Yeah. Uh, they have sheriffs, they're called, who <clears throat> help protect uh, private property. You know, somebody's animal gets loose and goes onto somebody other, somebody else's land and is grazing. Well, they bring them back. They uh, don't have any uh, government schools lining up school children. They don't seem to have any uh, tariffs. Uh, no indication of any you know major tax system at all. Uh, you could go on and on. Uh, it's a very limited government. Now, is that would that be a blueprint for any civilization? Well, of course not. And uh, Lord of the Rings has other civilizations where we can kind of get insights into Tolkien's views. There's Gondor, there's the, the uh, Rohirrim, um, there's some more and less dysfunctional uh, civilizations. Uh, when you go to the Ho- Hobbit, when you get to Lake Town, you have some people say, well, here's a critique of capitalism because you have a greedy uh, Lake Town mayor who's a, who's a business person. You have the greedy uh, dragon who seems like a greedy capitalist, but that, I think that's a misreading. We talk about that in The Hobbit Party. Uh, the, the dragon is more of, a, of an aristocrat. You know, Michael Novak talks about the difference between the aristocratic class in European history and the sturdy, bourgeois, up-and-coming entrepreneur. They had a very different mindset. The aristocrats that inherited their wealth tended to collect and sit on their wealth uh, the up-and-coming bourgeois, they, uh, they scrapped and, and built wealth. Yep. The, the master of Lake Town, he's crony capitalism personified because he's sure. both the mayor of Lake Town and he's the primary business person. So everything has to go through him and he has tolls. And, uh, and so there's a double critique there of a kind of cr- crony, bloated, big government capitalism. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jonathan Witt, we, we've got to wrap it up because you've got to get ready for your lecture. Uh, but I want to once again point out the book is called The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and The West Forgot. It's published by Ignatius. And uh, you and uh, your friend John, uh, Jay Richards are, are the authors. And a fine book. Uh, you can probably pick it up at Amazon and other reputable online booksellers. And uh, talk just quickly about the stream.org, too. I want to make sure our, our listeners yeah, know the, about the, the stream. The stream.org has a lot. If you go to stream.org and you pull up under about the 10 principles, you'll see a lot of principles there that look like they come right out of the Acton uh, synthesis, the Acton integration. Sure. And that's no no uh, coincidence. Jay and I both were research fellows here. We're both very committed to the Acton mission. And James Robison, who, who was a, a, a major pastor, and he... he uh, is the coast of life today? Yeah, was very enamored of what Acton was doing with uh, the book Jay wrote, "Money, Greed, and God." They got together and wrote the book Indivisible. Yes, and from the seeds of that comes the stream, which emphasizes conservative news and commentary filtered through this vision uh, that we see at Acton, promoting the free and virtuous society, which we always 
like to see uh, not only here but elsewhere. And, and Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by today. It really is. It's great to see you again. Yeah. Thanks for coming here. back. Thanks. Once again, thanks to Jonathan Witt for joining us here in the Acton Studios uh, on Radio Free Acton. The book, once again, uh, by Jonathan Witt with co-author Jay Richards, The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and the West Forgot, available from Ignatius Press. Thanks to Jonathan. Thanks to you for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. It's been a pleasure once again to bring you the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. We will talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us on Radio Free Acton.